Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today in the pod, Nima Gamsari, the founder and CEO of Blend, a very interesting company that's digitizing the mortgage process. Also, Nima just has a really interesting journey. He became a pro poker player while he was in college, made tons of money, but how he knew that that wasn't right for him. You're going to like this episode. Welcome to the first podcast of 2020. I hope everyone had a nice, relaxing New Year's. If that's what you wanted, it certainly was for me. I spent time with fam, we went skiing back home in Park City, and just hung out in LA. It was great to recharge and get ready to hit the ground hard starting now. I'm so excited for this year. My B-Day is Christmas Eve, so I got to blow out some candles, and part of my wish had to do with business and part with family. I can't wait to give you guys all of our exciting updates as they start to come in this year. Very, very exciting stuff. Okay, that's it for me. Let's get into the pod with Nima. Nima, welcome welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, we're doing this in a, in a hallway at Money 2020, um, but I would... Uh, it's like the Dr. Seuss book. I'll do it on a boat, under a bridge, whatever, because you're, you're, you seem like a really cool guy and I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, this is the most, you know, yeah, this is an amazing experience doing this in the middle of the hallway at a conference. <laughs> Hopefully they don't wheel like any like noisy stuff past us, but I'm 100% sure they will. Whenever I do a podcast at my home, it's a, a, a certainty there, that there's my, a train's gonna my go dog's going to bark, the ring doorbell's going to go off. It's like, so I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure that will happen. Um but let's just let's just like get into your story. Like, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? Let's start. Let's start at like then. Yeah, I was born in Iran, and I moved to the states very early. Grew up in Michigan first, and then Cincinnati, Ohio. Spent most of my childhood in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then went to Stanford for undergrad, where I studied computer science. Okay, so so which chili do you like? Um, I I'm not a huge chili fan, but if I had to choose one, I'd choose Skyline Chili. <laughs> Are you a Cincinnati person? <laughs> no, but I have a friend that's from there, and I've never I've I've been to the airport like so many times because like I went to a small a school in Pennsylvania, and like we had to land in Cincinnati every time, and that Northern Kentucky airport, and I had the chili. But um, okay, so so then you grow up there, and then it's kind of sad that that's what people think Cincinnati is all about. Like that's what we're known for now is the chili, <laughs> well, well, and not you... not the industries of like aircraft engines with GE and and, and Procter and Gamble, Gamble yeah, PNG, and Kroger. Yeah. With their Kroger, yeah, you yeah, know, Kroger like there's, some there's a things. real industry that that was at least really big there, but now I think you're right. It's like now the the city definitely is is changing, and I think there's a growing startup community there, which is really cool. Well, to see. Yeah, I mean, you have brands like that that are in Kroger and PNG are pretty innovative companies. So. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So then you go to Stanford. How was that? Like your your childhood dream? It was. I think going to Stanford is something that when I when I went to Stanford for their admit weekend or, or whenever we were looking at the, uh, schools, I went to all the campuses for all the schools and I went to visit a bunch, whether it was Caltech in your backyard or it was Duke or it was Harvard or Penn or Northwestern. But then you go to Stanford's campus. Then I went to Stanford's campus and I had a, you know, just a completely, I fell in love with it. The moment that I got there, it's something that's the most beautiful campus in the world. And then the people there, it's such a well-rounded group of people that made an amazing place to be. 
Um, okay, cool. And what'd you study there? Computer science. Computer science. And like, how'd you get into computer science? Were you, were you like a kid programming growing up? Or your parents did that? Like, where did that come from? I, I did. I was, um, I, I, I was programming from age probably 10 or 11. I was programming in, you know, in basic in, in third grade. And, and then growing up, I, I went to started programming in school in fifth grade. And it was something that I always just really loved. My parents hated it because as a parent, I think that where they grew up and they were very traditional, they were thinking kids should be outside with their friends. They shouldn't be right. at home in front of their computer. And I understand why entirely why they felt that way, but it's something that I definitely just had a passion for at a very young age, both the software side as well as the hardware side. I built a bunch of computers growing up just oh, for really? fun. Back when back when Dell wasn't as common of a thing, you know, it was something where like if you wanted a good computer at a low price, you had to build it yourself. Sure. There was that door that you were talking about. Yep. That's that door. Uh, that's okay. People, are, I think people appreciate authentic authenticity. So this yes. is this is the most authentic podcast I've been on. <laughs> I'm glad I can I can have that uh, designation. Okay, so you go to Stanford, CS, childhood dream, and like, what are you thinking when you're in Stanford? You're, you're still like tinkering and programming. You're like, I'm gonna do a startup. I'm gonna go work for HP. You're like, I don't know. What was what, what were the thoughts? Well, when I got to Stanford, I needed some money for room and board. Stanford is super generous for people in low to moderate income, um, back with low to moderate income families in terms of tuition, but there's still room and board needs and things, or at least at the time there were still room and board needs. And so I needed to get a job uh, to be able to pay for that. And I had worked at Starbucks and McDonald's in high school. And so I thought, well, I would, I applied for, there's a Starbucks right off campus. I applied to go work there. And one of my friends was like, no, you should go and play online poker. And so I actually got really into online poker and was a bit, um, really big into professional poker for like seven years. Really? This was like in like the heyday of like when ESPN started putting it on and Moneymaker and all that stuff, right? This was right after Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker that summer. And then all my friends, they were just obsessed with poker. And I was about to take this job at Starbucks. And my friend's like, no, you can play online. The casinos, if you can just break even, they'll pay you enough for your room and board in terms of just a small rake back with what they called it, where the casino takes a rake and they would give me a rake back which was basically a refund for part of that over time that would pay for my room and board. And so I started playing online poker then um, and it became sort of a passion of I'm mine. I'm sure your parents were really thrilled with that, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> very you even tell them? let's just say very <laughs> they found out. I did not tell them. Very traditional parents. I think obviously they, they didn't understand. It's, it's just, it is 100% over the long haul. It's a skill game. But it's hard for people on the outside to see there's anything but gambling. Right. And so I understood why they didn't like it, but they really did not like it. Sure. Um, and how'd you do? Um, so I started playing and I remember this vividly and they gave me a $25 sign in bonus or sign on bonus or $20 sign on bonus, where they just put $20 in my account. And I was like, this is awesome. I got $20 dollars. Um, and so I start signed and PayPal was the same thing, by the way, they would give you five bucks to create a new account. And I remember I, you know, it was just something back in the day when people giving me $5 was like a huge, huge deal. Um, but they gave $20 and I went online, I started playing and I had never really played before. So I didn't know the game very well, but I started playing and within three days, I lost the entire $20. I was playing very low stakes, like $5 buy-in games, but I lost the $20. Um, and I was getting ready to just call it and say like, look, I'm not going to deposit more money. I don't have any money to really deposit. And and then there was that there was this free roll tournament that Friday for all the new players who had signed up that week. And so I was getting ready. I like called the Starbucks. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to come back in and take the job. And I did the free roll tournament that Friday and it was thousands of people and there was a $3,000 prize pool. First place was $700, second place, $300. I lucked my way into th to second place and oh, I got wow. $300. And I was like, wow, like now this is really important. Like now I really got to take it seriously. And so I started um, 
reading a bunch of books, this book called The Psychology of Poker, another book called The Theory of Poker, really interesting books. But I also joined these online forums, which um, were basically ways to collaborate and learn and get better and do like retrospectives on hands that you played. And I was, I loved that because I had this community where I could comment on other people's hands and people could comment on my hands and they'd give me feedback and I'd post them and it, you know, it became a really good way to learn quickly. Yeah. And then, you know, long story short, within three months, I had made six figures and, like, <laughs> you know, over the next seven years had made, you know, a, quite, quite a lot of money playing online poker. That's amazing. And so you were doing this post-school, like this turned into like way more than just like a little side, side thing. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I, that I realized is that it's something that as long as I, I was probably playing, let's call it four to six hours a day online. And I was probably studying the game six to eight hours a day. So this is like, this is your life. This was a big part of what I did in college. And frankly, I think part of it was that college was you know, because I had been programming for a long time, a lot of the classes that I was taking at Stanford, at least early on, were things that I already sort of had in in my DNA, things that I could already do. And so I was able to sort of um, do really well in those classes because I had just been programming for my whole life. Um, so yeah, it became something that I spent a lot of time and energy on and not not in a way that was, I think, unhealthy. Like it wasn't something that I felt like I had to do it. It felt like a job. Frankly, it felt like a, a, a job that I was going to be committed to and dedicated to. And in fact, it probably taught me work. I didn't have work ethic going into Stanford, but it taught me work ethic and how the importance of working hard if I want to be able to get better and better every single day. That's a cool story. Thank you. Um, so eventually your parents find out this turns into like more than just a side thing. You're doing this a lot, a lot, a lot. So are you thinking like, I'm going to become a professional poker player or like, I'm just going to use this and go do something else. Well, I was a professional poker player. I think the question for me was, is this something that I commit my my post-college career right. to? Like a lot of my friends. So in 2011, the, the government came and shut down poker in the US. So then, yeah, I remember all the companies moved to like Cayman Islands or something. Cayman Islands. And, and all the players who wanted to play, they weren't allowed to play in the US anymore. Oh. Like if you wanted to play online, you could not play in the US. You had to go to a casino. But a lot of the people that I had played with online, in there, there was a small community. There's like 10 players who played the very highest stakes mm -hmm. in the games that we played in, in Limit Hold'em, which is the game that I played primarily, mostly heads up. And those five or 10 players, they would move to Macau or they'd move to Canada. Like they'd move to other countries because this was their right. their life. And at the time I was thinking to myself, that the problem with the problem with poker is while, while it was good in terms of it's a skill game, I control my own destiny in the sense that over the long haul, skill is the only thing that matters and there's nobody else I'm dependent on. There's a lot of luck in the short term. It taught me a lot about that. Mm. But in the long run, it's it's a purely a skill game. And But the thing that I could never really understand is or feel good about was I didn't feel like I was having a, a positive impact, if that makes sense. I, actually, I felt like I wasn't having a positive impact on society more broadly. And then I, I come from this world of technology where technology, I think, does really create a positive impact. You were talking about your startup, allowing people to create joint bank accounts digitally. And I think those are the kinds of advancements that will be prevalent in society in 5, 10, 20 years. And the question is, do I want to be part of those advancements in society or do I want to make a lot of money? Right. And I think the or, thing that I ultimately chose was make a lot less money and go be part of the positive advancements. And of course, in the long run, these things happen to work out where if you create a lot of advancement and value in society, there's a natural monetization to that over time as well. And so these things tend to work out if I focus on the value creation aspects, which is what I decided to do. So I was a pound, I, I joined Palantir right after college. And when they shut down poker online, I just cold turkey quit and I haven't really played at all in eight years. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, good for you. That's that's interesting. So you, even in Vegas, you're not like thinking, oh, I get sucked back into this old world. Well, think about it. If you were working on something 14 hours a day, sure. it, it become it really became a job. Growing up, I loved 
washing my car, my parents' cars, and then like, I started a car wash in my town, and like, I grew it to like we were washing cars at all the golf courses, and I loved it in the beginning. And I haven't washed a car since because I, I hate washing cars now. Right. <laughs> it's 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 it's, be, it's be taken it and made it instead of an activity. It's yeah. made it sort of a sure sure a chore. Okay. Um. So what does what does Palantir hire you to do? Uh, I was brought on as you know the title at the time was called business development engineer. So I had an engineering background, but I was going to focus as part of the business. We were trying to get into financial services, and I was and I was trying to they were trying to figure out what's the best way to enter into financial services. And so I was one of the early people which involved a lot of prototyping, a lot of building V0s of things, and then going out in the field and talking to customers about it. And then right then the financial crisis hit. Right. And so I had I had actually just uh, just graduated. My, my sister was at City, Citibank at the you time. You graduated 07? 08. 08. Okay. I graduated 09. Okay, cool. Yeah. And and so my, my sister was, was at Citibank and she, just before all the crisis stuff hit, you know, she was originally thinking I should come to City and I think she probably saw something coming and she was like, actually, you should probably go into tech. And like, and I was like, and yeah, and my, my other friends were like, yeah, if you ever want to build something great, don't go into finance. Not to say like everybody here is in finance, but just don't go into finance if you want to build stuff because it's just hard and you get sucked into this vortex where you're making too much money. Again, similar thing. Similar, similar thing. And, yeah, then, and value, then you can never, is... you can never get out of it. Right. And so, so I decided to stay in, in the Bay Area, joined Palantir right before the crisis and then the crisis hit. Um, and it was, and from there it was just, the rest is history. Right. Um, what do you mean the rest is history? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess what I was saying is like, I've <laughs> obviously stayed in Silicon Valley. I, I stayed at Palantir for four years. Mm-hmm. We built a big uh, effort to help post-crisis the big, some of the biggest mortgage books in the world, which got me an understanding of the mortgage world, which ultimately is what led us to start Blend. But obviously I've stayed in Silicon Valley now for 11 years. Right. So you're, so you worked, so how long were you at Palantir for? Four years? I was at Palantir for four so years. that's your first job. And then you're like, you're seeing this mortgage process and then something inside of you is like, I want to create, I want to do my own. Like I have this entrepreneurial fire and like, I see this problem. I think when I when I see a problem of that magnitude where there's trillions of dollars in these portfolios and a lot of it was paper and it was very it was very opaque it was very difficult for consumers to be able to understand the process of in this case modifying a loan or going through a short sale if that was needed post crisis where they could no longer make the, afford to make the payments how do, it, it 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 opened up my eyes to just the sheer amount of opportunity that there was if we could marry this antiquated antiquated process with modern digital technology um, and I, when I thought to myself, well, why is nobody doing this? It seems it's such a big industry. It seems like something that would be ripe for disruption. And there's the internet's been around for a long time and digital has been around for a long time. And I think the reality, I think the real part of the reality was that nobody who's left college understood financial services and FinTech wasn't a word yet. So it wasn't cool to go and work in these spaces. Mm-hmm. It wasn't cool to go work and build software that was going to power financial services. And so I just think nobody had thought to do it in a weird way. It doesn't seem like a really big innovation digitizing this mortgage process in the sense that like digital technologies existed for a long time, but I think there has to be some, like a, a unique combination of skills around technology and combining that with understanding of an industry or learning an ability and a willingness to learn about an industry that, that I was in a, in a position. And I was like, man, I'm maybe I'm the only technologist who's one of the only technologists who has like this kind of entrepreneurial spirit who has see, sees this problem. And so I really have to do something about it. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's, that, that's powerful. I mean, that's how a, a truly like great value added business is built. You actually live, see the problem, breathe it yourself, and then you go set out to, to remedy it. And so tell us about the problem that you're solving. I mean, like I'm sure lots of people on this, on this podcast have like got mortgages, gone through it, seen it. I mean, I don't know if they've worked in it, but uh, I'm refinancing my mortgage right now. I mean, it's, 
I think it's like taking like four months to do this. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah. And I think, I think what the, the simplest version of our product is it used to be that to apply for a mortgage, you know, you did, you tell somebody a bunch of information via some sort of form, some sort of application form that would include, here's how much money I make. Here's how much money I have in my bank accounts. Here's my, you know, my credit history. Here's my other houses I own, whatever it is, all this information. You'd fill that out, spend, you know, you know, a few hours filling that out. And then the next day or two days later, the bank asks you for a bunch of documents and then, you know, over the next few days or weeks, somebody reads through all those documents internally and comes back to you with additional questions. And then they go and they'll verify some of the things that you said with the employer that you said you got your income from or the credit bureaus that obviously have your credit history or your banks that you said you have your assets with. And and so that process is a several week up to several month process. And it's, it's built around this concept of it was built with with the assumption that the data that's required to make these credit decisions was not available. And it wasn't right. Like income data used to be things that were locked up in old school mainframes. Right. And nowadays we can verify income in two and a half seconds, like we are faster even, like we can verify income instantly and we can verify assets with direct bank connections, all these aggregators that are out there. And so in a world where all the consumer data is becoming available to consumers to use for their financial betterment, then uh, the, the entire process of getting a mortgage should be flipped on its head where all those verifications, all the things that I mentioned that are required to verify with your employer or your bank, whatever, those happen up front, and instead of you filling out a form asking the, the bank what it can, what then it can do for you, the bank tells you what it can do for you instantly. Right. And so we flipped the process that we're a digital provider, where we're a white labeled software provider that we work with banks of all sizes, credit unions of all sizes, um, home builders of all sizes. We work with a lot of the fintechs. We're getting into the mortgage and other credit spaces, offering the the, the white labeled solution that will allow for this process to be a data-driven process instead of a document-driven process. Yeah, that makes total sense. And when you started it, did you start off thinking of we're going to go to banks and have them become our customers? Or do you, do you think we'll like roll, roll this out ourselves and be consumer-facing? It, it was a point of controversy. Uh, I think a lot of people at the time, in 2012, when we started the company, the companies that had been successful in, this, in the fintech space were, were SoFi, Lending Club. A lot of the companies that that later became household names, went public, became very successful in their own right. And but they went into into these spaces that were uh, not yet controlled and and not yet you know really uh, centralized with a a small number like a fifty or a hundred banks. Uh, and so what that meant was they were able to become successful, and that we had a lot of pressure on us by our investors to say you should go direct to consumer. I felt then, and I still feel to this day that the missing piece in this industry is not consumer acquisition or customer acquisition. The missing piece in this industry is the technology infrastructure that can do these products in one tap. Like if I can do these products in one tap and I can make that technology available, then I can really help millions of consumers instead of hundreds or thousands yes. of consumers. And that was the, 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 and going back to what I said earlier about focusing on impact, when I left poker, I was like, I want to focus on impact. And I still have that same exact feeling today. If I can do something that can affect positively millions of consumers in the same time frame as it would have otherwise taken me to do thousands of consumers or tens of thousands, then I'll do the one that takes millions every single time. Right Now, of course, there are, there are differences in the economics when we're not going direct to consumer and there's differences in the amount of control we have, but that was a trade-off that we were willing to make given the amount of impact that would be we would be able to have as a result. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I met with a small bank, a regional bank yesterday, and they said, we have so much demand for mortgages. Deposits are our, are our uh, bearing factor. We don't have enough deposits to be able to do all these mortgages. So it's like, you're right, there's just so much demand for this. It's about improving the process, not about the, not about the acquisition of customer. Right. Very interesting. Okay, so- uh, I love the I love the product. I love the idea. Um, who do you start it with? Like, how does the how do the early days go? 
Well, the early days were were definitely a grind. Uh, actually, every day is sort of a grind when we're when, in financial services. And I'll just just as a sidebar, financial services is a heavily regulated space with a lot of really big and really methodical institutions. Not just on the banking side, but you know, think about the credit bureau. Like everything is very big and very methodical. And in some ways, it, it's frustrating for people. I think of it as sort of something that is a space that we're working with a lot of people's entire life savings, their entire money. If they're going to put a down payment on a house, we have to make sure we get it right. There's a lot that goes into financial services that when we do it right though, and we can do it, if we do it at scale, even if it takes a little bit longer, it will be so positive for society that it's worth it. It's yeah. worth the frustration. It's worth the, the the methodical aspect and methodical nature of the industry. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm certainly, I think I'm not I'm just more telling the anecdotes is like, it was very interesting early days where when we would go and we'd pitch people this concept of, we're going to make a mortgage so easy that um, you can apply for for a mortgage on your mobile device in seconds. They would say, why would anybody apply for a, mor- a, mobile, a mortgage on their mobile device? And I get it. Nobody had applied for a mortgage on their mobile device until 2014 or 15. And so I understand why they didn't think it was necessary. And yes, it is a really big life decision. But then on the flip side, a lot of people are growing up as mobile digital natives and a lot of low to moderate income communities, mobile devices are now the primary device in a household. Right. And so there's no other way to apply without going to the library or somebody somewhere else that there's um, uh, there's there's, compu- there's computers available for them to use. And so people didn't really see it. It was a grind. It took us a few years to get our first couple customers. And as soon as that really started to happen and people saw what was possible and people saw that digital was became, becoming more important, more and more important in around 2014, 2015, it was like everyone, all of a sudden it clicked and people were like, yeah, we do need to be digital and yeah, we do need to be mobile. Even if it's a really big transaction because consumers are seeing and feeling mobile and digital experiences in the rest of their life. And they're feeling low friction experiences. They're feeling one tap experiences in the rest of their life. And if we don't do this, somebody else will. Sure. And that became something that we, we use as a cornerstone for our business. That's fantastic. I, I, uh, I really like the idea of it. So, um, so who are your customers today? Like how, a lot, lot of, a lot of the big banks. Yeah, we work with some of the biggest banks. Uh, we work with some of the biggest credit unions. We work with some of the biggest home builders. We work with some of the biggest fintechs. Um, but we also work with small community banks. We work with regional banks. We mm. work with uh, small credit unions. We work with um, our independent mortgage banks. We work with you know p- companies of all sizes and shapes in this spectrum. And I really think about Blend as as sort of a digital infrastructure, digital financial infrastructure for this industry where we can connect a lot of the pieces because the transaction is very complex and has a lot of pieces. We can connect a lot of the pieces for consumers and for lenders. We can bring it together in a meaningfully simple, simpler way than it used to be. And we can do it across the entire industry in a way that everyone sort of benefits and we raise the bar, we raise the watermark for what what good service looks like in this industry. Right. Yeah. Um, we do, just for numbers wise, we do about almost two and a half to $3 billion a day in mortgage applications going through our system. And so we have significant volume going through our system and that makes it a megaphone for us to be able to go and say, okay, well, if we make an improvement to this, it can affect millions of consumers over the next year. And is that two and a half to 3 million? Is that is that a big piece of the market, a small piece of the market? Two and a half to 3 billion is probably somewhere around a fifth of the mortgage application today. So it's, it's, a, it's a significant chunk yeah. of the market. I don't know the exact numbers. Right, I, right, I wish I had the exact number. Somewhere around, somewhere between a tenth and, and a fifth of the market. Sure, interesting. So, um, so where do you go from here? Is it continuing to 
to evangelize the company and get more and more of, of that of that pie? Or is it other products? Is it other lines? Is it other credit? Like, I mean, the mortgage business is pretty big. So, making the mortgage as simple as possible is very important to me and to us as a company. I think we can make every mortgage feel like a modern digital consumer grade experience. It'll take some time. There's still a lot a long way to go. I mentioned this industry is methodical. Everything takes a lot of investment. Um, it's not just serving consumers either. There's all these banks have, you know, a, a ton of internal team members who, if they're still using antiquated tools, then we've failed them as well because they're there to serve the consumer. And if they're using old school things that don't allow them to serve the consumer in the way that they would be in a self-serve way, where we know for a fact that some decently large percentage of consumers don't want to do this self-serve. I mentioned that a lot want to do it on a mobile device, but a lot also don't want to do it on a mobile device. A lot want to do it with a person. And we should allow that. We should enable that. We shouldn't for really big transactions be forcing the consumer's behavior towards what we think is best for the lenders or for the ecosystem. We should force, we should allow consumers to engage with the institutions how they want to. And so the, 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 the short answer to your question is there's a lot of opportunity to continue to make the mortgage process simpler. So that's a big focus of ours. That's sure. the primary focus. Um, second, we're taking the same technology to the other products. So a lot of the verifications, a lot of real-time understanding of a consumer's credit capacity is something that we be, we've become very, very good at in the mortgage process. And so our goal is now to take that and allow for a bank or a credit union or a financial institution of any kind to offer an entire suite of products to the consumer using the same information, the same kinds of system that with the same system that we have in place today. So if we know how to get your income, we know your under, how to get your credit and we know how to get your assets, we can show you what you're approved for across the entire right. bank instantly. Yeah. And that's really powerful. And then the third thing is each of these transactions is very complex. The real estate one being the biggest one, the home buying one being the biggest one. So how do we bring together the ecosystem around buying a home? Um, we launched our home insurance uh, agency last year and we've continued to build out other components of the ecosystem so that as there's digital innovation in those spaces that the consumer can get the benefit from it and from the scale that we're getting with our customers. Right. Well, that's very cool. Nima, I'll let this be the last question. It's usually around advice. You know, if someone is early in their career, maybe they're still at Stanford, they're working in their first job at Palantir and they're trying to like figure out their place in the world. They haven't found their passion, their path, whatever it is. What, what do you, what do you tell someone, someone like that? Well, if they haven't found their passion, I mean, I'm a pretty patient person I think I, I have some some in, you know belief that people should be incredibly patient when they need to and then incredibly impatient when opportunity arises. And so it, I had to be patient with I had I had a couple other things that I thought about doing in between when I graduated from Stanford and when I ultimately started Blend. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I didn't and I'm glad I found something that I could have a really meaningful impact at very large scale. But as soon as I saw the opportunity and I felt like it was one that I could be the one to meaningful impact. I remember my last day of Palantir was the day before we started the company. It wasn't like I went and took, you know, a month to go decompress. And granted, we were working. Palantir was a great is a great company, and I was working very very hard. A lot of all nighters. There's a lot of work to build the things that we built there. But then, as soon as this opportunity came, I was incredibly impatient. And so I think uh, there's no rush. Play play the very long game. In the in the grand scheme of things, but when opportunities arise, take them. Sure, you know it's 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 not. We're we're fortunate to live in a world right now where there's a lot of capital to be deployed. There's a lot of transformation that's happening, and tech is the driver of a lot of that transformation. And so, if we're able to be the ones that can can, can solve some of those things, 
we'll look back in 50 years and be like, wow, like that was really cool to be a part of that time in history because in 50 years, the world will not be needing this transformation. It will already have happened. Sure. Okay, well, Nima, thanks so much. This was great. Sorry, it's a little noisy, but we'll wrap up before this next uh, wave of people walk through here. But really, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends. Thanks. Thanks.